My name is Jamie Keach, and you're listening to the Resource Insider Podcast, where we talk to CEOs, thought leaders, and entrepreneurs in the mining and metals industry. Welcome to another episode of the Resource Insider Podcast. Today, I'm happy to announce we have a sponsor, which is Macmillan LLP, a Canadian leading business law firm with an international presence and client base. The firm has offices in Toronto, Vancouver, Calgary, Ottawa, Montreal, and Hong Kong, and specializes in business law, capital markets and securities regulation, mergers and acquisitions, natural resource law, and many other things. I would like in particular to thank our legal counsel, Roland Hurst, who is a leading capital markets, M&A, and mining lawyer at the law firm of Macmillan based here in Vancouver. Roland acts as a trusted advisor to mining companies, entrepreneurs, and financiers, assisting them with their domestic and international mining projects. Roland's done a lot of work for Resource Insider. We've been very happy with the things that he's done and Macmillan in general. So we're very proud to have them as a sponsor here at Resource Insider today. All right. Now we are back to another episode after quite a bit of a hiatus here at Resource Insider. And you may have been wondering where I went or if there were going to be any other episodes coming out. And the reason for the break is I've been traveling quite a lot lately to various sites and conferences um, all over South America and Asia. And this is primarily for the Resource Insider subscription service. So for those of you who don't know, Resource Insider is focused on finding private placement opportunities in the mining and natural resources industry. So I've been out there talking to various companies, looking at their sites, meeting with management teams, trying to find the best deal uh, to give our subscribers access to. And we've got a few great ones in the works right now, so I'm pretty excited about that. But today I'm back in Vancouver, uh, and we're getting back down to the podcast. And I had the chance to sit down with Tio Deschev. Now, Tio is the president and CEO of Mondoro Capital. Now, we recorded this podcast about a month and a half ago, and I've been waiting for the right time to send it out, and I'm pretty excited about now. Uh, Mondoro is an exploration company, copper-focused, in the Tethian Belt. Now, for those of you who don't know, the Tethian Belt is in Eastern Europe. Um, Mondoro is focused on Serbia and Bulgaria in particular, and they've got some really interesting projects there. They've done some really impressive work, particularly joint venture agreements with Jogmac, uh, a massive um, Japanese company that's uh, government-owned, and Freeport-McNamara, one of the biggest copper companies in the world. And they're spending a lot of money. They are exploring some very prospective projects in what I believe to be one of the most prospective and exciting regions in the world right now. So I got to sit down and talk to Tio. She's been with Mondoro for several years now. She is a mining engineer. We actually went to the same university and the same program, so we had a lot to talk about there. But she's had a really, really interesting career trajectory. She has been a commodities trader. She's been in equity research. She did an MBA. She was in research in totally different industries besides mining. And then she came back to mining. She's been the CFO of a mining company which is a very unusual trajectory for an engineer, even one with an MBA. So we got into that a little bit. And now she is, of course, the CEO. Uh, We talk about doing deals. We talk about research. We talk about copper and the Tethian belt in particular. Tio is a very bright woman. She has an extremely unique and thought-provoking view on exploration and the industry as a whole. I learned a lot talking to her. Um, I've been very bullish on the Tethian region for some time now, and this conversation really just tipped me over the edge and got me really excited about it and everything that's going on there, and particularly what they're doing at Mondoro. So without further ado, please let me introduce Tio Deschev, the CEO of Mondoro Capital. Tio, welcome to the podcast today. Thank you for inviting me. So... 
For people who haven't heard of Mondoro before, you are the CEO. Tell us briefly what Mondoro is and what they do. Absolutely. Mondoro is an exploration company that is focused on making a world-class discovery. That's that's really the nutshell of, of Mondoro. How we're doing that is by focusing on the Tethian Belt, which is a very well-known um, metallogenic belt in Eastern Europe, which has 100-year-old um, mines um, that are currently in production still. And our, our strategy has been to build a um, important land package around known deposits and systems so that we can make the next world-class discovery in the district. Excellent. So I actually want to get more into that throughout the interview, but starting out, would you be able to give us the 30,000-foot view of how you intend to do that going forward? Yes, absolutely. Um, A really important part of our strategy is to uh, build partnerships, and that means signing transactions where third parties can earn into our projects. And basically what that allows us to do is to leverage our balance sheet. So even though today we have um, 4.8 million in cash, while we're trading at only approximately 11 million in in market capitalization, um, it allows us to spend a lot more than what we actually have on our balance sheet. And so for example, we have signed an earn agreement with Jogmec, which is the Japanese oil and gas metal corporation. Uh, they will be spending um, approximately $4 million over a span of three years, which they're at the tail end of now. Also, we've signed an earn transaction with Freeport McMoran Exploration, who will be spending $5 million over three years. So that was actually just a recent occurrence, that, that uh, agreement with Freeport, is that right? Yes, we just signed that at the end of July. Now, will you and your team be performing all the work in exploration and it will be funded by Freeport, or will they have a team of advisors involved in that? How does that process actually work? Yeah, it's a little bit of a hybrid of that. Um, essentially, what we do is for all phase one of our programs, we are the operator, and that allows us to maintain continuity, knowledge of the projects. Um, it's important. It takes time to transfer knowledge. And so by running it during phase one, while a partner is deciding if they want to get into the project for the long term, we are the operator. And then uh, once they make a decision to go into phase two, then we transition out of operatorship and hand over the keys to the partner. And do you have any idea how long phase one is expected to take? Phase one uh, in both of those scenarios is three years. Three years. And then what's Freeport's second phase earning? So phase two is five years for them, where they would have to spend $40 million U.S. in order to earn an up to a maximum of 75%. So you guys have a lot going on right now. We do. We're a very busy team, and we are constantly growing. So I want to talk more about not only what's special about Mondoro and what you guys are doing there, but what is special about the Tefian Belt? What drew you to that part of the world and... Uh, both the challenges and you faced working there and the upsides of that. But I want to start before that, and I'll say we actually have something in common that I didn't realize. So when I was researching this interview, I saw that you went to the University of Toronto and studied mining engineering, or I believe at the time it was geological engineering, which was the same program that I graduated from in 2008. So what drew you uh, into engineering uh, and then specifically mining engineering? Okay, well, that's, um, that's a long answer. <laughs> I firmly knew I wanted to be in engineering because, quite frankly, I wanted to go into satellite design. Okay. My big thing was growing up as a kid in you know, the 1980s was the whole space race mm-hmm. and the idea that you know, we're all going to be up in, in the stars one day. So for me, engineering was that's where I want to be. I uh, went to the University of Toronto, and um, rather than doing um, uh, mechanical engineering, which is really what one would use in order to get into the space side, I decided to get into chemical engineering. And chemical engineering um, at the time 
uh, was a program that I think was getting less and less funding, and so it became all about food processing. Um, and I decided to change focus. I think the whole concept of exploration still really stuck with me. And so I went into geological engineering because mm-hmm. you were out there exploring for mineral deposits, but looking at it through a more technical lens than necessarily uh, geology, which definitely is within the faculty of, of uh, sciences. But um, certainly engineering is a little bit different and a little bit more technically intensive. Um, so I went into geological and mineral engineering, and yeah. it was a great, great experience. Well, it's interesting you say that because, I mean, I went to U of T as well, and I had a lot of friends in chemical engineering and in what was at the time when I was there, aerospace engineering. Yes. And I find a lot of people get into engineering, uh, especially some of these disciplines, having no idea what the actual job afterwards will be like. And I mean, a lot of people that I know who were in aerospace engineering thought they would be going to space or designing rocket ships. Yeah. Instead, uh, the ones who made it successfully through that program then were in grad school, were spending 70 hours a week uh, looking at uh, you know, millimeter changes to a wing in an air tunnel. And it wasn't really the fantasy that they'd had in mind uh, as a 16-year-old applying to university. Absolutely yeah. true. Yeah. And, and uh, same with chemical engineering. I think yeah. the idea of working in a lab is a lot more romantic than the actuality of working in a lab. I wanted, when I was a kid, I wanted to be an explorer. Uh, and unfortunately, I realized around 15 that that wasn't an actual job anymore. Uh, so what drew me to uh, geology and, and mining was the exploration aspect and the, the ability to go to these places that so few people get to see or yes. get to interact with or to just to, it's, I don't know, it's just, it's really a fun thing to do and incorporating science and the ability to build a business and to make a proper career out of it is unusual, and I find a lot of people do uh, either by design or by accident come into the mining industry for just that reason. I'm a firm believer in engineering education. I think it is a fabulous platform. Not everyone who has who ultimately enters into the engineering discipline not necessarily has to become an engineer, but they can use that as a base. So, on that note, what where did geological engineering? sort of lead you earlier in your career? Were you out in the field? Were you working at a corporate office? Where did where did you end up uh, either early on as a summer student or something like that or in your first jobs thereafter? It led me to Bay Street. Bay Street. <laughs> uh, as you know, U of T is in downtown Toronto. And uh, when I graduated in 1996, there was nobody hiring. It was it was the dearth of employment. There was just um, no opportunities. And um, actually, what was uh, really interesting to me was uh, mineral economics, which is yeah. a course that you take in engineering in your fourth year. Um, and the professor, George Kent, who actually uh, ran a few mining companies, um, approached me after class uh, one pretty much near the end of the semester and said, you know, I know this guy. He's a mining entrepreneur. He runs a whole bunch of public companies. He always hires every year one really bright student. Would you would you mind talking to him and find out if this is something you'd be interested in? Because yeah. I think you'd be great at it. Um, so I went to meet Pat Sheridan. And yes. boy, that was a wonderful experience. Pat Sheridan is a uh, geophysics engineering grad from the 1950s. From the University of Toronto. From the University yeah. of Toronto. So he is our alumni. Um, and boy, he was he was so inquisitive about everything that was going on in the sector, in the industry, and not only purely from a technical point of view, but also from a financial point of view. So um, I had, I think, like a two-hour interview with him, and he hired me on the spot. And that's where, really, I started my career. So I find this very interesting because, and I mentioned this to you earlier, that I had two friends in university that were those bright students. Um, One of them was my roommate in university, and he ended up starting working for Pat as a summer job, Uh, and he was up working out of his basement in the bridal path, uh, basically doing whatever whatever it is he wanted him to do. And I still remember this. Uh, one of the first things he did is Pat gave him a bit of money to trade in copper stocks. Oh, I think nice. it was $10,000. Yeah. 
and he lost it all in the first oh. month. And he came home and he was like, well, I'm probably going to get fired this month because I, because I <laughs> lost all of his money. Um, but he ended up working with him for several years and, and, and right. using that as a really excellent stepping stone into what's turned out to be a very successful career. Yes. Uh, so were you, what were you doing? So um, at the time, actually, Pat was still downtown. He had the yeah. entire 18th floor of the National Bank building, uh, which I think he had on a something like a 30-year lease. So it was a wonderful um, kind of experience. Basically, I, I started off doing research for him, mm-hmm. um, and the idea was he was really interested in molybdenum deposits and specifically the extraction methodologies that were available at the time. Um, so I, I spent quite a bit of time looking at extractive processes. So, you know, again, kind of really digging into my roots in in engineering. Um, But as soon as we finished that, we basically, you know, Pat being Pat, and as you just um, highlighted, loves to trade, he had a very long-standing trading program. And so his thought was, um, I want to try something different in commodity trading. And you have an engineering degree, so I want you to write a program for me that basically looks at copper, gold, and silver, (laughs) and look at the sinusoidal wave and how that correlates to uh, the last 30 years of trading data that you can buy from the Chicago Board of um, the Mercantile Exchange for for the copper and, and gold and silver contracts. And I thought, okay, I have no experience in this, but I'm going to try and do that. Um, so it was basically about a six-month project, and it turned out to be very interesting because it does have a lot of correlation. And so uh, after completing the program, we ran it, you know, excessively over all of the data and basically tried to pick out what was the right interval at when you jump in and when you jump out of the specific trade cycle. Right. Um, so having done that, we... Um, Let's explain for a second to, to listeners what a sinusoidal curve is exactly. So, so it's basically frequency, right? Yeah. So when you look at a frequency and you look at an XY uh, yeah. chart, uh, a sinusoidal curve is basically the frequency of a wave going up and down yep. and basically coming back to the center. So that, that's in its most basic form. And you're trying to find the key points to catch it on the up wave and yeah. get out before the down wave? Well, no, no. So this, this Did is I get the this trick. Wrong? <laughs> <laughs> this is the trick in sinusoidal waves. It's, it's, it's a repeating wave that mm-hmm. has a frequency of an up interval and a down interval. Yep. But it doesn't matter whether you're going up or down in the broader cycle. What you're trying to do is catch the intraday or the intratrade of the sinusoidal action of the trading. So you can have a very long running down cycle, but you'll always have bids and asks and trades that are up and down. So it was actually, I mean, if you think about it, he was thinking about uh, intraday trading before it became a thing. Oh, I see. So you're buying and selling each day. Exactly. Not buying gold and holding it for months or years at a time. Well, you could on some trades if you wanted to, if that's what your book allowed. So what were you trading? Were you actually trading commodities with this or equities in that space? No, no, no. No equities. This was purely commodities. And we were running... um, So basically, we started an account with uh, one of the brokerage firms at the time that were dealing with specifically commodities. And they were actually had floor traders. Yeah. So I was getting on the phone every morning, you know, putting in my trade to the floor trader who would then go in and basically make the transaction for us. So it was a very different trading market back then. Everything was based on telephone calls. Um, but it basically, you know, at the end of the day, if I can summarize that program, basically Pat's view was that um, you could you can make a very good return on the commodity movements mm-hmm. within you know, obviously I'm using right now intraday, but trading can be can be um, segmented down to much smaller increments and trading within those based on a sinusoidal wave is really what the concept was. Um, we did that for two years uh, together and that was a tremendously valuable opportunity. So not only did we trade uh, the actual derivatives, so the contracts, but we also traded the options on those contracts as well. So it added another layer of complexity. And uh, that was the first time I learned that, yes, you could get uh, basically put in an entire delivery of copper, (laughs) which was fascinating because um, sometimes we actually took that. 
And it's interesting. I mean, you know, back in those days, the brokers were obviously very, very involved. And uh, I remember one time we decided to take an order and uh, our, our, our broker called and said, you know, you can't possibly take delivery on this. This isn't, this is just feasibly not going to work. We have another client who's short on, on a delivery he needs to make. Would you consider, you know, crossing the trade with him off market and basically settling that? So it was a very, I think, important introduction for me to the whole concept of commodities and the market around what you and I learned is here's engineering of these types of deposits. Uh, And that basically kind of opened my eyes to the entire markets. And then from there, I went to equity research. Yeah, well, that's a very interesting transition because you're kind of getting the absolute base level of the, the finance and business side of the industry and what it all pertains to and what it's all built around. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so many of my um, classmates and colleagues, so I graduated in the early part of 2008, which was still a bull market at that point, and basically anyone with a pulse got offered a job as an analyst on Bay Street, and many, many of my classmates did that. Um, yeah. But they didn't get that underlying uh I guess the underlying understanding of what the market's based on, and a lot of them didn't get any sort of practical experience at all prior to getting thrown into that equity research role. Yes. So well, that's you, very common. So you were there for, for two years, so this would put you at about 23 or 24 when you when Exactly. You left yeah. yeah. So what, what made you want to step out of you know trading of, of, of physical commodities into the equity side of the industry. You're really much more involved technically in the story. Okay. And so I I really wanted to, to kind of transition from the commodity side of the business into the equity side of the business and to do that through research. Um, and so I applied to Loin on Dachi McCutcheon, which was looking for an equity research associate at the time. And um, I, it's funny because I, I flew out here to Vancouver and again, I had an interview with the equity research analyst for two hours. And he's like, yeah, you know, I I want you to join me because it's very rare to have someone with that commodity trading background come in. Um, And that was a great opportunity because then that was Robert Van Dorn. Okay. Robert Van Dorn uh, had just finished uh, being the head gold analyst at Morgan Stanley and was basically in retirement mode, uh, left Morgan Stanley and got convinced by Garrett Herman, who was the chairman of Lowen, to come to uh, Lowen on Dachi and basically build a franchise around uh, equity gold research. And his his kind of platform was, Garrett was, uh, I think, a tremendously interesting leader for a brokerage firm because he really gave gave you so much latitude. Um, his whole concept was cover the best of what you think is in this industry, and we will build a model around that. So your mandate was gold and anything yes. good in gold. And it, it, was, it, was, it was definitely a focus on gold equities, okay. um, but certainly they never stopped us at looking at any of the copper equities, which is why we looked at stories like 10K and Corriente back in the day. Uh, we were covering El Dorado Gold when they were 50 million market cap. I mean, we were exposed to, I think, some of the best of the breed stories at the time, uh, who are obviously very well-known stories today. And, and when was this? Was early 2000s? So this was uh, 1999, and 2000. Okay. So literally at the bottom of the commodity market, when we hit 257 in the gold space, it was um, it was really tough. It was there was probably globally 20 plus analysts that were covering the sector. We all used to go on the same site tours. It was it was a very different market, but it really demonstrated the the fundamental. I think it brought everybody together to really kind of highlight the best equities that have got to make it through the cycle. So at that time, you're at the very bottom of the cycle. The only companies that are left are the ones that had managed to hang on, uh, either by luck or a great asset or an extremely good management team. Mm -hmm. You know, was there any similarities that you saw in these companies that were able to survive at the bottom of the cycle and then went on to become the Eldorados of today, to become multi-billion dollar companies when they were, you know, just struggling to survive 10 years ago or 20 years ago? It was the assets. Fundamentally, it came down to the asset. The ones that didn't have the asset just couldn't 
couldn't raise the capital in order to make it through. So we were covering, for example, Royal Gold. Mm-hmm. We were. Co- I was actually the first equity research analyst that picked up coverage of Royal Gold. It was a royalty company. Nobody had even heard of that. The concept was, what, why do you... <laughs> it yeah. was actually very difficult to convince investors at the time that they should really be considering royalty streams. Um, at the time, Stan Dempsey had one of the kind of best royalties over um, the old Placer deposit. So how long were you there for? So until the end of 2000, uh, and in January of 2001, I joined National Bank Financial in order to go on to the investment banking side of the business. Um, A big frustration for me in equity research was that, you know, you, you pour so much time and your heart and soul into these companies and providing research coverage. And at the end of the day, it was, um, it, it, it was a really difficult market, and I found that the investment bankers were given a lot more latitude to kind of cross-pollinate across sectors in, in the downtimes, whereas equity research, we weren't given that flexibility. So when you say it was really difficult to market, do you mean to market that to the bank, to the to the brokerage side, or to the banking side of your bank and, and get them to no. work with them? Or no. who are you marketing to so, as a research analyst? So for example, uh, Eldorado will give us an example. When we did that financing, I think it was in the fall of 99, I had a call list of probably about 60 funds that I would call. As an analyst? As an analyst, trying to set up meetings for people to listen to the story. Because we covered the stock and we wanted to make sure that there was a proper marketing route for them. Um, I literally called probably every single one of those people on that list, and we maybe got 10 meetings. and so many of the calls were, oh, I'm sorry, we no longer have a gold fund. We need to speak to our generalist now. Or actually, our technology st- uh, analyst has taken over the, the gold portfolio. You know, you'll have to pitch it to him. It was, the, the industry was just shrinking so quickly and so aggressively that it felt to me personally, oh my goodness, I need to diversify my career yeah. <laughs> because mining might turn into forestry. And I think all of that to basically say that equity research was the perfect platform in 99 and 2000 because it was so gruelingly difficult. You really had to stand out and do phenomenal research and pick the best ones. From that point, I thought I want I need to diversify my career, and I'm going into the investment banking side. There's just there was no there was no kind of alternative for me. So I went I joined National Bank. Yep. They were trying to grow their uh, resource team. Um, John Lytle had just crossed over from equity research to investment banking. John was the number one base metal analyst on the street. Uh, they had just done their acquisition of First Marathon, so Lawrence Bloomberg was kind of transitioning out. It was a, you know, and Bill Washington was obviously there as the VP. It was a wonderful group to join and really, you know, work on some very interesting transactions. So one of the ones that we worked on was Franco Nevada. Yeah. Franco Nevada wanted to essentially... Um, they wanted to take a position in Normandy, and they ended up, you remember years ago, they bought the Midas Mine, which yes. now is obviously changed. Um, but essentially, what they did was they swapped their investment in Midas in return for a 20% equity stake in Normandy, and basically Normandy began running uh, the Midas Mine. Okay. So it was a bit of a, it was kind of like a, an asset swap for an equity position. And uh, we worked on that transaction. We advised them. It was... Um, Yeah, it was some really, really... And David Hartwell was the VP of Corporate Development at the time at Franco. So I feel like I was given this really great opportunity so early in my career to have um, a a really good understanding of not only the technical side, but also the business side of the mining sector. And you really, it sounds like, had a window into meeting and to seeing how these very high-profile leaders in the space operated and, and how they made decisions and how they built and grew their companies. Did you find, um, you know, dealing with those people, did you find you took away a lot from, from actually observing them or, 
or was it more working with the, the people on the banking team that added the most value? I think the, the thing that is really important that I found was very interesting about meeting all these um, kind of leaders in the mining sector is that they were all really kind of humble and they all understood the importance of luck. It, there, there was no big egos. There was no promotion. They were always talking about the assets. They were talking about the mines more than they were talking about the companies. It was yeah. a, a different way of communicating. It's very interesting you say that um, because after you left uh, U of T and by the time I was there, the mining engineering program was sponsored by Pierre Lassonde, and it's now known as the Lassonde Engin- or Mineral Engineering Program. And Pierre would come in and talk to the class once a year or once every two years. And I don't remember all of that, but I do remember one thing in particular he said was mm-hmm. he said that I, he's speaking of himself, I've had the luck of three lifetimes in my life. And whenever I interview a geologist, I ask him how lucky he is. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's something he looks for. And, I mean, it's a weird thing to, like, it almost sounds like a joke, but I think he meant it very seriously because there's a certain type of person that seems to attract lucky opportunities or, you know, very unlikely events to themselves. And it's why you see the same people finding mines over and over. It's why David Lowell has found 17 mines and most geologists never even get close to one. It's, It's unusual. And... I think that's very telling that they had such an appreciation for that. And I think maybe that's been driven out of the culture a little bit today. It is important to understand that you can have a tremendously um, great asset, but if you're unlucky in terms of market timing and perhaps you know advisors working with the company at that time, uh, it won't have the same trajectory over the same time frame. And when you recognize the luck that's involved, I think everyone becomes more appreciative and level-headed about really how to handle that that kind of opportunity. Is there any way that you try to maximize your own luck as the CEO of a of an exploration company? Maximize our luck. <laughs> well, I think the best way to maximize luck in the future is to work with the right people. I think that the industry it's an interesting industry. I mean, I know everyone gravitates to certain names and name recognition is very important, but at the end of the day, you've got to be you've got to work with people that you trust and you have to work in a way where you're developing um, and constantly expanding the value of what you understand. So, I think for, from Mandoro's point of view, we've been very lucky. We've got Graham Brown on our board. Uh, John Huey is one of the founding shareholders who isn't very well known in, in the in necessarily in the metal side of the business, but is very well known in the oil and gas side of the business. And Graham was the head of exploration for Anglo. Exactly. For yeah. over a decade. And under his tenure, they made, you know, numerous discoveries that were multi-million ounce style the deposits. Um, I think it's you know, when you attract people like that, you bring a lot of world knowledge and a lot of background. To Because sometimes when you're talking about systems, when you're all sitting in a room and you're trying to understand what's going on in that system, each person has a different perspective and their nugget of information could be literally unlock the next kind of location of your drill hole. So another really great, we've been so fortunate, uh, Dick Silito has come out on site a number of times. And um, and he's a porphyry copper expert, is that right? Exactly. I mean, he's kind of the, the godfather of, of uh, porphyries. <laughs> he's tremendously um, insightful in how he approaches uh, reviewing technical information, the drill core data, and talking about the systems, which our team genuinely uh, has a really good experience and extracts a lot of value. So how do we bring luck into the company? We work with really, really talented people. And I think, quite frankly, they're attracted to the opportunity as well in the Tethian belt. So let's shift gears a bit and talk about how you transitioned into the company side and what drew you specifically to the Tefian Belt and that part of the world in Eastern Europe? Sure. Okay. So um, National Bank, uh, that's where I was for starting investment banking. And um, it kept going down as a sector while I was there. And I decided I'm going to go get an MBA. So I went to the Schulich School of Business in Toronto. At York, right? At York yeah. University. I did an MBA. 
And then I decided to get into what I would call, um, so again, investment banking at Desjardins Securities. And Desjardins was trying to grow their platform in English-speaking Canada and, and essentially their, their head office in Toronto or that they had started. And um, I uh, covered everything. And it was wonderful because I actually got a chance to work in sectors outside of the mining sector. So wow. I covered technology, software, hardware, uh, real estate, consumer products, financial institutions. All of that gave me, I think, a much better, broader appreciation for running a company mm-hmm. as opposed to just the silo of mining. So you could have you could have escaped from mining forever at this point. Could have, could have gone could into have. technology or hardware and never looked back. Well, yes, that's that's one way of looking yeah. at it. But I think what I did was actually um, created a more valuable and enriched yeah. experience. And and quite frankly, I'm a better CEO for it. So. So what drew you back into the mining side? So while I was at Desjardins, um, uh, obviously mining started to take off, and you know I was the only person in, in that department in investment banking that had a mining background. Um, and so naturally, I started doing more and more mining transactions as those deals started coming in. And uh, one in particular was Mondoro. So Mondoro uh, was a company that had been focusing on China. Yes. The uh, CEO at the time was Robert Van Doren. Mm-hmm. So Robert left equity research about a year after I did and uh, decided to join the corporate side. And one of the companies that he joined was this company, Mandoro. Um, you know, we talked about the, the technical aspect of Maoling, and we actually, as a firm, ended up raising capital for Mandoro. And uh, about a year into it, he said, look, why don't you just join me as the CFO? I need an in-house banker. This is going to be a great opportunity. It's such a, a world-class deposit. It's really important that we get into a jurisdiction which has which can give us an opportunity to find another Maoling. And in my mind, the best opportunity was the Tethian Belt because I had covered Eldorado Gold, Anatolia Minerals, TVX back in those days. And it was very obvious that the Tethian Belt had tremendously uh, valuable um, deposits that were world-class, but nobody was looking. And there was a complete misalignment between perception of risk versus reality of risk in those jurisdictions. Um, And I basically pitched the board that we need to go to the Tethian Belt, and they were, you know, they agreed. (laughs) It's, it really has been a tremendously good opportunity for us. Well, I think that you bucked the trend in that one, and I've seen you speak about this before Mm -hmm. uh, in your presentations, but the norm is this uh, sort of north-south divide that companies tend to do. So Canadian companies, for people listening, uh, have a massive tendency to invest or start projects uh, throughout the Americas. So be it North America, Latin, South America, or Central America, are almost totally run by Canadian companies, projects in those areas. Mm-hmm. Australians seem to have the dominance over Asia. The Brits seem to have the dominance over Africa. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's very few companies uh, that move east to west when looking for projects. So I assume at the time... Uh, even with the successes of Eldorado's taking that leap into into Europe mm-hmm. was difficult to convince maybe your board, maybe not your board, but the market at the time to see the value in that. Um, well, certainly the market didn't recognize the value. That's absolutely true. But that's that's never been a deterrent for me. I, I believe your job as the CEO is to create value for your company and to use your skill set and to use your experiences to to create that value. I'm not going to sit there and, um, you know, try and create an opportunity in a market that I think is hot. That's not how I do things. So you say that like that's something that doesn't happen, that that's an obvious no. thing because everyone listening to this podcast will have been caught up in something like that at one point where well, they, they tried to invest in a trend and they tried to ride a trend and for most of them, it probably didn't work out. So sort of that sort of more lateral thinking and not being absorbed into something common like that is is not the usual. 
I think that's because of my background. So my background, I, like we've been talking, is very technical, very research-orientated, and very pragmatic. So the Tethium belt was literally a no-brainer. Eastern Europe was not a high-risk jurisdiction. Eastern Europe was perceived as, as this place where there was excessive corruption and you can't do anything, there's no rule of law. In reality, that's not true. Bulgaria was already in the European Union. Certainly, Serbia was was not. But having said that, I travel to all of these countries in advance. I do a lot of due diligence. I talk to all of the embassies. I don't just talk to the Canadians. I talk to the Americans. I talk to the Australians. I talk to the South Africans. I talk to the British. I get a very good sense of what is going on on the ground and can we do business here? And the overwhelming answer was yes. And you had an interesting sort of window into Bulgaria as well, right? Because your family is Bulgarian initially. Is that correct? I am originally Bulgarian. That is absolutely true. Um, So that probably allows me to understand the mentality there a little differently than perhaps someone coming out, coming into it with a completely non, you know, maybe entirely North American background. What you have is um, a society in in that part of the world that is very well educated. They've got very strong technical and science data, which you need as an exploration company to pick up ground. And you've got a very willing and able workforce, tremendously, um, I mean, these people are so talented. Usually they have two or three jobs at any one particular time. So from, from, a, from a company point of view, you walk into this jurisdiction and you look at it as, this is great. There's excellent employment uh, opportunities uh, in terms of like from an employer to hire local geologists. People here have worked for groups like Rio Tinto and Anglo American yeah. who left a, you know, a huge database of information in the local geo funds. I mean, it was it was so ripe for the picking. It's almost ludicrous that nobody else was doing it. You know, that reminds me of, I mean, when I, my first job at a university was in Albania, actually, doing exploration, and we hired mostly Albanian geologists, and a big part of our job was working with them and training them, and it follows really exactly into what you were saying. The base was there, and it was mostly just a matter of getting them up to speed on modern techniques and using software and using yeah. uh, you know, certain exploration techniques, and they were operating very quickly, very effectively yes. uh, on their own. Uh, I think we made ourselves redundant very quickly as uh, graduate engineers and geologists. Um, and I've heard, and looking through your website, that you do hire a lot of local people, and even you know senior management positions are a lot of local people. Yeah. Um, how do you? How have you gone about finding them, and what what is it that you're looking for? Because I think a lot of exploration and mining companies fall down in that respect in terms of perhaps they have a lot of local laborers or miners, but building in those leadership roles at a local level is either challenging or something that can be ignored at times. Yeah. Um, well, it's definitely not easy. Uh, so. First of all, my number one criteria was that you've got to be very technically strong. And certainly um, the, the, the senior exploration managers that we have in the company have all international experience in the sense that they've worked for either Rio or Anglo or they've worked for Newmont they, uh, or Dundee, for example, is another one. They all recognize the Western approach to business and certainly understand, like you mentioned, the most current techniques in exploration. So that was number one fundamental. Your pool decreases significantly once you use that filter. So where did you start picking up ground first uh, once you identified that as the region you wanted to work in? Yeah. So actually, I should mention that uh, Richard Moores was part of the team and part of the board when we got into the Tethian belt. So Richard used to run Anatolia Minerals, which then became okay. Alasser Gold. And um, we just uh, kind of took the, the, the view that we're going to buy all the data we can get our hands on from these geo funds because these countries have central depositories of information um, and basically just start uh, ranking targets. And uh, I think we visited something like 30 targets in those early days with Richard and then really kind of um, homed in on the Timic complex, which is the, the ground package that you see today. That was all free ground. 
It was unbelievable. It was open ground. So it was obviously a very simple decision to so pick up all. It. <laughs> you just staked it, all of it. Um, and I would guess you were competing with Reservoir at that time. No, I mean Reservoir was there. Chicotopeki hasn't hadn't been discovered yet. Right. So we got involved. Uh, remember, this is early uh, 2011. Okay. Yeah. So Chicotopeki wasn't discovered until uh, I guess the fourth quarter or the fall of um, 2012. Mm-hmm. So we had, you know, obviously no idea that was that was in the making but um certainly bore bore was the the beacon when you have a hundred year old porphyry mine um that had started at you know plus five percent copper and even higher grades that's something you immediately gravitate to right so to see a land package around a complex that's been in production for over a hundred years and then within you know a five kilometer zone, there's open ground. I mean, you don't even think; you just do, and that's what we did. So, where does your land package um, in Serbia there sit with respect to the bore mine for people listening? Yeah, so we're directly west and directly east. So we've circled around it, mm-hmm. and we ended up picking up also the um, the southern half of the Timic complex on the west side. Okay. Yeah. So it it together, including a license to the north of a mitem pack. Um, I think today it sits at around. 560 square kilometers, and then when you add in our licenses in Bulgaria, that's about an 800 kilometer package, square kilometers. So what are you guys looking for there? (laughs) Well, we are looking for a world-class deposit, and uh, look, what you find in this district is porphyries and epithermals, Mm -hmm. and so you really have to become uh, focused in on what are the indicators for those kind of systems. And so that's porphyry, copper, and epithermal gold projects. Yeah, yeah. copper and gold, because the epithermal systems, as you've seen now with Chicotopeki in the upper zone, have both. Right. So we're not necessarily agnostic to a specific commodity as we are to what we call world-class deposits uh within the porphyry and epithermal environment within this belt. And that uh, gives us a lot of flexibility, obviously, in terms of what we're looking for. But, for example, we've attracted um, JOGMEC, which is the Japanese Oil and Gas um, National Corporation, which is a government fund that really gets involved at the conceptual stage. And their focus with us is base metals, obviously copper. Yep. Uh, we've just signed um, an earn-in agreement with Freeport. Their focus is obviously base metals as well. So JogMag is committed to spending $4 million in exploration on your properties in Serbia, right? Yes, that's correct. And Freeport, for the first stage, is committing to spend $5 million yes. um, for 51% of the, of the project. And then if they progress to the second stage, it will be an additional $40 million um, for 24% of the project. Putting for them an at additional at 74% total ownership. 75, yes. Sorry, yes, 75. So even in the first day of Freeport and Jogmec, that comes to $9 million that's going to be spent in the ground adding value to your assets. And you are currently an $11.8 million company. You have to sit back and say, okay, what is the investment proposition here? What is this company trying to achieve? Who are the people that are going to achieve this? Do I believe they can succeed? What are other examples that they're looking for in this district? Is there infrastructure there? How can this get to the end game? And those types of questions, they all have answers, but everyone has a different approach of what that means. One of the reasons why we are so focused on, on partnerships is because when you, when you sit there and you talk to you know, these types of groups that we're talking about, they understand that it's not, it's, they don't even care about what your, your public value is. They want to understand the potential of that package and what they could spend on it in order to get to a certain milestone so that it can be basically graduate into the next type of deposit for them. Right. And I think that shouldn't be missed by the market in terms of what kind of value that brings. Why are you running an exploration company? You know, you could be making uh, a pretty good salary, I would guess, as an investment banker right now. You could, you know, not worry about the risks associated with that. Um, what is it that drew you to exploration and has kept you there? I think you've been here for seven years now. Am I right on that? Yes. Well, I joined in 2006, right, as the oh, CFO. Okay. So, so quite that, some yeah. time. Um, so fundamentally, it's the, you know, have we started our conversation? Exploration. This is an opportunity to create value in something that didn't exist before. And I think that the 
the uh, the science involved in making a new discovery is it's very challenging, um, but that's what drives me is is creating an opportunity for the people who fund this company to make a 10 times return on something that is is a new discovery uh, that is world class that's what that's what we're trying to do and that that quest is what keeps us going it's um and and it's you know it's not an obviously an easy task as you know there's a lot of discoveries but it's also there's not a lot I mean this is a whole other side thing that I can go on but there isn't a lot of discoveries because there isn't a lot of funding and exploration right there was a lot more funding even in the much tougher days there's a lot more funding and exploration well I think Rick Rule talks about that now that he thinks we're coming into an exploration market for the first time in, in over a decade because even in the last bull run, so much of that was driven by M&A and, and these projects that had already been discovered, but metal prices hadn't been at, a, at a, a level to make them economic, and then metal prices went up, and all of a sudden, you know, Lumina is the best example. All these known projects got picked up by Ross Beatty and spun out in various uh, companies at many, many multiples of their value, but there hasn't been that money that's going into new discovery. And we haven't seen that in certainly not my career, but even most of yours as well. To shift gears a little bit, um, there are not a lot of female CEOs in the mining industry. What advice would you have for women that want to take that next step and move up in their career and take control of a company or a project um, and really run with it? That is a really great question. I think it's, um, I'm sure, a question that a lot of women um, do think about. And my absolute best advice would be do not hesitate. I think there may be a perception that women um, uh, might not be aggressive enough, but at the end of the day, if an opportunity presents itself and your gut says, I want this, you should 100% do everything you can to go after it. So I think uh, let's talk about that a bit more because, I mean, obviously this is a challenge that women can face, but also a challenge that any younger person in their career can face is one sort of choosing which direction they want to go and how they want to focus. And I mean, yourself as an engineer didn't really work as a pure engineer. I myself as an engineer, I'm no longer working as a pure engineer and went more into the finance role. So once you start to get an idea of the area you want to look at, how do you actually recommend going out and trying to grab a role in that that other people might not immediately assume you're well-suited for or have the right experience for or, or something like that? That is a really great question. Um, I would suggest to go out and start talking to people. Go out for lunches. Uh, if you're in a big city like Toronto and you're an engineering um, and you're in, in, in the technical role, uh, immediately reach out to your to your immediate kind of graduate class or cohort and find out, uh, find people that are in the role you want to be in and go out for coffee. Talk to them, talk to them about how they got into that role and um, just start applying. And I genuinely think that there are, um, there are going to come up opportunities that are transition roles. You, you might not find the exact role you want to be in, you know, in the future, but you'll find a transition role that gets you towards that path. And um, don't hesitate doing it. The number one thing, the, the best thing you can do in the early part of your career, that first 10 years, is to get a really broad range of experience. Don't, um, don't, don't feel as though you, you need to stay in a technical world because that's where your education is. Yeah. And I, I think I would add to that that, you know, try to do things for free. Um, Absolutely. I mean, I wrote about mining projects and went on site visits and sort of blogged about things for probably five years before I ever actually made a dollar doing it. And I did it because I found it interesting uh, and I liked doing it. And to be honest, I liked doing it more than I liked design or, or a lot of the stuff I was doing day to day. And I mean, that was a really awesome skill set to have and to develop the work I was doing day to day, but it's not where I saw myself going in the long run. And just to give a more, uh, a more modern example is, you know, at Capitalist Exploits, 
we just took on a research intern who is an engineer. He'd done some work in finance. He was really interested in metal and mining. He's just signed up and just started a master's at the Colorado School of Mines. And he reached out to us and said, can I work for you and do research with you guys for free? I've been reading your, your site for years. And, I mean, obviously we said yes because, I mean, having someone who's clearly that passionate about it and, you know, willing to put that sort of work in is exactly the kind of people we want to want to work with and what, what I would look for as well. Yes. And, you know, I would say that um, one of the things that I find perhaps people are afraid to do is during that interview process, don't be, don't be um, too put off if a company challenges you on, on your background or experience. Do things that will help them see that you might not have the experience they don't, ha- they don't see today, but you can gain it very quickly or you have the passion for it. Um, it's, I mean, I, I don't think I was the perfect candidate for uh, my equity research role in the sense that I had never done equity research before, clearly. Right. But um, I definitely, obviously, the, the commodity trading part was very enticing. But um, I'm sure there was other candidates that were equity research associates that could have slipped into the job immediately. But it's the way you communicate yourself and your passion for what you want to achieve with that firm. So... On that note, you also, you became a CFO after that role, which is a very unusual role for an engineer to hold. Uh, I can't think of anyone else off the top of my head who's done that. Um, So not something that you'd be traditionally qualified for. So you were able to do that step again into something that was similar to, but outside of your immediate skill set. Exactly. So how did that happen? How do you, how do you go from being an engineer, an equity analyst to a CFO? Probably never having written financial statements before at that point. Yes. Well, it depends on what you want your CFO for. Um, And I was very clear on that when when I joined Mondoro. Um, So I had my MBA. And obviously, so there is is, um, financial training. There is also the fact that, you know, in equity research, you are de facto become like a CFO and that you really, really do uh, grind into the details of financial reporting. Right. So the question is really, what does the company want? Does the company want a chief accounting officer or do they want a chief financial officer? And you have to be really careful about what it is that you're applying for. Some companies do want accountants. That's what they want. They want somebody that's going to live and breathe accounting. Other companies want CFOs that are going to come in and help them build the strategy you know, develop partnerships, um, develop assets, work with banks, perhaps work on a lot of internal M&A transactions. You know, it, it really depends on what the firm is looking for. Okay. And then you became CEO. So this is something I, I've, I've wondered about at other times is, especially in these smaller startup style companies like uh, junior mining tends to be, you know, generally CEO is not a job you can apply for. Uh, it's not something you see advertised very often. More often than not, I've seen two paths. Either someone takes the initiative and starts the company, they stake the project or they acquire it from someone else and or they put up the money or they raise the money mm-hmm. or they're working internally at the company and the existing CEO or whomever steps out and they're tapped to fill. And I know that was your path. Mm -hmm. But if you're someone who has had some success in their career, maybe they've achieved a senior role and they want to take that next step, whether they're a man or a woman or otherwise, and there's not the immediate um, opportunity at the company they currently work with, do you have any advice for how you'd go out and actually look for a project or a company to run? Oh, that is not easy. No. I mean, it's not, there's probably no simple or direct answer to that question. But yeah. It's something I've wondered about and have watched people do or, or try to do. Yeah. Well, I've certainly heard of a lot of stories in terms of how um, people have gone about it. And it depends on what your skill set is. If you're a technical person and you believe passionately about a specific project and uh, you know who currently owns it and you can get a transaction on that project, then go out and do it and you need capital. So then you need to find you know someone with a financial background. I find that 
companies don't get started by a person. They get started by a team. It's very rare that uh, one person does everything. Um, so I would suggest that if you're coming at it from the technical side, find somebody on the financial end, the investment side of the industry that you can partner up with yeah. and build those th those relationships and start a company. And if you're coming at it from the financial side, um, then find a geologist that you trust that can be your technical guide. And I, I would add to that and play a little of the devil's advocate that while it does take a team of people, almost every company needs a champion, someone that kind of grabs the reins and forces it forward. And the one, the startups that I've been involved in have always had that person that is really their name on the line. And if things go wrong, they're the one who's going to look bad and take the blame. And I think if you want to do that and the people that I've seen successful in this space have been willing to put their reputation on the line, maybe take less money than they would have otherwise liked to have made and, uh, and really taken ownership. And I'd probably give that advice to anyone out there that that's what you need to do if you really want to, to run anything and to be in charge of it. Don't wait for anyone to give you the opportunity to sort of find it and take it and push it forward and probably be aware that it won't work the first time, but hopefully the second or the third. Absolutely. I mean, it's um, technical... The, you know, the technical, I'd say, merit of our business, that's fundamental. If, you, if an asset is not good, you shouldn't be putting your name behind it. I, I don't like the model of let's just start a company and start flipping through a whole bunch <laughs> of projects, um, and then we'll find the right one eventually. I like to start a company based on the fundamentals of the asset. If the asset is tremendous, then you can put your name behind it, you can put your weight behind it, you can put your capital behind it, and that really drives, I think, the best kind of value. Yeah, good advice. So to finish off, what would you say to investors at home right now that are thinking about investing in Mondoro? Mm -hmm. um, why would they choose you uh, as opposed to another exploration company or even another exploration company operating in the same region? Really what you want to remember is how much money goes in the ground every year? Yep. And as a result, uh, what's the valuation of the company and how much dilution have you suffered in order to maintain that level of expenditure to give you the opportunity to create a discovery, which really fundamentally is the reason why you're investing. Um, in that respect, uh, from compared to the 10 companies we have on our, on our comp sheet, um, on our corporate presentation, we've got the lowest dilution over the last three to five years and one of the highest expenditures. And we've been able to do that because of the partnership model. You know, you guys have a great um, investor sheet of institutional shareholders. Do you have any idea um, what you can attribute being undervalued to? Um, is it a lack of knowledge of the, of the region, perhaps? Or have you been less aggressive in marketing than some of your peers? Is there anything you guys have, can put your finger on that you can, can point to there? I think we definitely haven't been as aggressive in marketing. We've been very focused on technically driving the projects, mm -hmm. and we haven't been as, um, I think, driven on, on the, the marketing side, simply because our view is with a great discovery, the story will get very well known. And I think there has been a bit of a, you know, prove it um, mindset in the investment community about Eastern Europe. Right. Okay, well, I'm not sure we're going to find a better place to end it than that. If people want to learn more about you or about the company, where can you recommend they look? Definitely come to our website. There's lots of great material there, and um, we're definitely starting to make more of an effort on social media. And is that mondorocapital.com? Mondoro.com. Mondoro.com. Okay. Thank you very much for taking the time today. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Resource Insider Podcast. If you're interested in getting access to the biggest deals and best opportunities in the mining and metals industry, go to capitalistexploits.at and sign up for Resource Insider now.